Leaders are often the ones asking the organization or team to move on a new idea. As such, we know better than anybody how much resistance shows up with any kind of change. In this episode, how to overcome a bit of that resistance and keep moving forward. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 557. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. You've heard me mention this distinction on the show before between management and leadership. I'm a big believer that management is our answer to complexity. Leadership is the answer to change. So much of our work as leaders is about how we handle change in our organizations, how we inspire it, and yes, how do we overcome the obstacles to change. Today, I'm so glad to welcome a guest who's absolutely an expert at helping leaders and organizations to be able to move on new ideas and overcome the resistance that so often we see in them. I'm so glad to introduce to you David Schoenthal. He is an award-winning professor of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management, where he teaches courses on new venture creation, design thinking, healthcare innovation, and creativity. In addition to his teaching, he also serves as the director of the entrepreneurship programs and the faculty director of the Zell Fellows Program. David has contributed to Forbes, Fortune, the Harvard Business Review, and has been recognized by Thinkers 50 and Cranes Chicago Business for his work. Along with his colleague Lauren Nordgren, David is one of the originators of friction theory, a groundbreaking methodology that explains why even the most promising innovations and change initiatives often struggle to gain traction with their audiences and what to do about it. He is the author with Lauren of The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance that Awaits New Ideas. David, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. You start the book with an analogy about a bullet, and you ask the question, what makes a bullet fly? And when you ask that question, most people say gunpowder, right? But but you say that's a bit of an incomplete answer, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So gunpowder is not the wrong answer. It's just, as you mentioned, only one half of the answer. And when you ask audiences what makes a bullet fly, everybody's first instinct is it's the thing that makes it go forward. So the explosion that gunpowder causes inside of the barrel that propels the projectile out the other end. But in order for a bullet to travel great distances, in some cases up to two miles, and also arrive at its target with precision, it not only needs to be powerful, it needs to be precise. And to be precise, bullets are designed to be aerodynamic, meaning that they cut through the forces that stand in their way. If you think about an object floating through space, the power that propels it forward is only one force that has to be considered. The other forces are all the forces that it encounters on its way. So gravity pulling it to the ground, wind resistance and drag trying to slow it down. And if a bullet is unable to address those forces, while it may still be powerful, it won't actually reach its destination. And that's the metaphor we use to introduce this idea of friction that most of us, when we think about how to make ideas better, we focus on making them more powerful or or propelling them with greater velocity and don't think as often about all of those forces that stand in the way of that idea as it makes its uh, as it makes its way towards its audience or towards its destination. 
And this book is really about that, how to spot those forces standing in the way of progress and develop strategies to overcome them. Yeah. One of the key points you make throughout the book is we tend to think in the in the lens of fuel of moving things forward. And we don't often think, or at least we sometimes we or we'll think about it much later of the importance of friction. What is it that keeps us from thinking about friction more quickly and apparently? It is just a natural human behavior to believe, especially if you're an innovator or a change maker, that if somebody isn't saying yes to your idea or to your product, that there is something wrong with the idea or product, that it isn't featured properly, we haven't explained it properly, we haven't advertised it properly, we haven't priced it properly, because we tend to look at the world through the lens of our own experience. So for example, if you are uh, driving down the freeway, this is an example Lauren and I talk about quite a bit. If you're driving down the freeway and you see somebody erratically driving in and out of traffic, cutting you off and speeding, and you think about what is your opinion or what is your reflection on the causal mechanisms of why somebody would do that, your first instinct is, well, that, that person's a jerk or that person's a terrible driver, that person's inebriated. And we rarely stop to consider the context that they may find themselves in, which is maybe that person's an emergency technician on their way to an emergency, or maybe they've got a full bladder and need to go to the bathroom. We tend to look at the world through the lens of our own experience. And as innovators, where we pride ourselves on being problem focused, we pride ourselves on being focused on the ideas that we're creating in some ways by focusing on those things and trying to add more fuel to them, trying to make them more magnetic, trying to make them more appealing. We fail to recognize that we actually create more resistance. We create more drag. We create more headwind. And so this book is a real attempt to try to get us to move away from this fuel based mindset about how to make ideas more attractive and to start thinking about how to reduce the friction that stands in the way. As I think about the situations I've been in and clients have been in around change, it, it is interesting how when it's us driving the change or the new idea, we do tend to think about it through the lens of fuel. But then when in the very next conversation or meeting, when it's someone else driving it or some other entity, we right away fall into the inertia and the friction points. And we see those so clearly. And to me, this book is such an invitation for us to be able to, in both contexts, to be able to look at things from the other perspective. And particularly in, in one of the big invitations you make is how to overcome inertia and some of the strategies for doing that is to be able to look at that from the perspective of the person who's seen the friction. And so many of us run into this, of course. One of these key strategies is the strategy of repetition. What mm. is it about repetition that's so powerful? Yeah, there are a few different remedies and strategies that one can employ to try to minimize that tug of the status quo and minimize that inertia. And as you point out, one is repetition. And funny enough, just simply talking about a strategy or talking about an idea frequently and regularly makes that unfamiliar thing feel more familiar. And there are examples that are talked about in the book, going back to ancient Rome and, and Napoleon, about in order to get their constituents on board with a potential war or a campaign in the military, they would, in, in particular in the case of Rome, there's a, an emperor named Cato the Elder, that regardless of what 
topic he was speaking about, and regardless of what his audience was interested in, would end every speech he gave with the phrase, Carthage must be destroyed. Hmm. And simply by building this common phrase into his speeches, his audience started to warm up to the idea, you know what, Carthage should probably be destroyed. And while this is a fairly diabolical and aggressive way to use this tactic, the same is true inside of corporate strategy or inside of change. If an idea is being heard for the first time, it feels foreign. It feels like something that's hard for me to wrap my head around. But if I hear it again and again, it becomes more familiar. And because it's more familiar, it becomes more desirable. And another example of this principle in action that, that my colleague Lauren, my co-author Lauren Nordgren talks about a lot, which is if you were forced to make a determination on your love or like of beer or coffee the first time you tried beer or coffee, and you were forced to make a decision to commit to being a beer drinker, commit to being a coffee drinker on that first encounter, the vast majority of us, I think, would say, no, I don't think I'm ready to be a beer drinker or be a coffee drinker. But the more we try beer and the more we try coffee, we actually develop an affinity for it. So not only repetition in terms of things that are said, but also repetition in terms of exposure and behaviors is a really powerful tool. You write in the book, inside companies, repetition is often a missed opportunity. In our experience, leaders often conceal their ideas, waiting to perfect the details first until they're ready to launch. This doesn't right. give employees time and opportunity to acclimate to the new initiative. And I, I, I see this all the time, too. My sense is, is that we vastly underestimate the amount of time that we need to communicate new ideas, repeat. Uh, so many leaders that I talked to, it seems like they said, well, I, you know, I've, I've talked about it two or three times, or I've sent out an email. How, how much more do I really need to talk about this? And really, oftentimes, that's just the starting point, isn't it? It is. And, and consulting firms do a pretty good job of this, whether it's McKinsey or Bain or where I used to work at IDEO. There is a temptation for consultants to wait until the conclusion of the project to pull the curtain back on the strategy or the product or service that they're developing. But it becomes quickly apparent that if that is the first exposure that the client has to the idea, there will be resistance because this thing is very foreign. This thing is very unusual. And while it may be interesting, we tend to hunker down and stick with what we know. So what do consultancies do? They have frequent project check-in meetings, sometimes weekly, sometimes quarterly, where throughout the process, the team will report out on what they're learning and report out on what they're building. And the client will kind of watch this strategy develop over time. So then in the final meeting or the final presentation, that's not the first time they see it. That may be the 12th time they've seen it. And now, this thing that was once unfamiliar has become something that they've become acquainted with and comfortable with. So it's much easier to adopt than if you just sort of do a jazz hands, ta-da, at the end and reveal something for the first time. So you see this behavior in practice a lot. You just don't necessarily know that that's what you're seeing. It's a great lead into one of the other strategies, which is starting small. And mm. speaking of consulting examples, you cite one of them in your work of a firm, Public Digital, which is a UK consulting firm. And uh, I understand that they help government and large institutions transition into the digital era, which is obviously a huge job to work with large organizations to do that. And the, the term for this is digital transformation, which sounds really daunting. And so they have a strategy that they use to start small. Tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah. And this is something that, that is coming up again and again in interviews I give and in conversations I have and in, in advisory work is organizations that are attempting to under attempting to undergo digital transformation programs. And I'm sure most people in this podcast have heard the term digital transformation, which is effectively a, a pithy way of describing the modernization of an organization away from more manual processes to digital first and more automated processes by leveraging their data assets and, and software, et cetera. But despite the fact that this is the ambition of many organizations, it's a pretty intimidating thing to hear, digital transformation. That sounds very Herculean. It sounds time intensive. It sounds expensive. Yeah. In fact, anytime we hear the word transformation, we immediately say, oh, like here comes another strategy. Here comes something that's going to occupy everybody's time, everybody's right. effort. And Public Digital, as you mentioned, is a consultancy based in the UK who focuses on digital transformation, helping bring public organizations into the digital economy. And while they engage in digital transformation, it's actually a practice of many partners in the firm when they're going to present a project or when they're going to speak to a potential client of deliberately not referring to digital transformation as digital transformation, simply because it sounds so, it sounds so large. It sounds so ambiguous. It sounds so um, effortful. And so one of the things that the digital, uh, the public digital does to help ease this inertia is rather than saying, all right, let's talk about how we're going to transform your whole organization. The way they approach it is to say, what is the next important initiative or the next important project that this entity has to engage in? Let's carve that one very focused project off and let's see how taking a digital first approach to it can generate better results. And so they shrink the task of digital transformation down to a single project that sometimes we refer to as a beacon project. Hmm. And then they assemble a small team of their professionals, as well as a couple of early adopters inside of that, the client organization, maybe three or four people that see the value in trying a new way of working. And they form this small team around this focused project brief. And throughout the course of the project, they not only share out what they're learning and, and externalize the progress that they're making, they keep this deliberately small. So at the end, when the rest of the organization looks at the results of taking this digital first approach and say, wow, that's really cool. How did you do that? Now they've got a record of the process that they can share with others. But now what they've also done is create this, again, this beacon that others in the organization can look to and say, I would like to try what you did in that project for something I'm working on over here in some other part of the organization. So by creating these small magnetic beacons, um, they're actually digitally transforming the organization from the bottom up instead of from the top down. And that's been a very effective strategy for them. And so when I'm standing in front of a room of chief technology officers or chief innovation officers, often what I will encourage them to do is rather than think about digital transformation as this big overarching multi-year program, start thinking about it by starting small and thinking what's the next major initiative? What's the next initiative we can carve off and take a digital first approach with? We had Steve Blank on the show a while back and he uh, made the invitation for us to think about minimum viable product and minimum viable service from an entrepreneurial lens. And mm -hmm. I hear echoes of that in this, uh, obviously thinking about it more inside an established organization, but the concept is similar in that 
you're not trying to boil the ocean overnight here. You're starting with something that as a, as a beacon that is easy for people to get their their heads around, but also allows you to start to show some results and get buy-in over time that you know, by starting small, oftentimes you're, you're doing better in the long run than you are by trying to do everything at once. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, in some ways there is a, a nice relationship to minimum viable product or prototypes with this idea of starting small. And one other way we can help people overcome frictions is to frame things not as the first step in a long journey, but to frame it as here's an experiment we'd like to run. Let's try doing this next thing with a, a more digital facing approach than an analog facing approach. And simply even just by framing, as an, framing it as an experiment that minimizes some of the friction that stands in the way of organizational receptivity. And that's also one of the strategies that you advise is making something prototypical. Tell me about how that looks on how you might frame something as a new idea in presenting to an organization. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the reference to prototypical in here is a little different than when we talk about prototypes and designs. In prototypes, when we talk about prototyping and design, we refer to prototypes almost as like embodied versions of questions we're asking. This is a... Uh, sketch level concept that helps kind of looks like and feels like what we're trying to create and we take it out for feedback in the context of this recommendation of making new ideas feel prototypical there's uh this is more about how to make unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar hmm. one of the reasons that organizations and individuals uh, recoil from or resist new ideas is just the fact that they are unfamiliar to their audience and sometimes despite how new something is, all of the features and benefits that make it better than the way things used to be or the status quo, sometimes by featuring its newness, we can actually create a lot of intimidation and anxiety amongst our audience. So sometimes it takes discipline of innovators and entrepreneurs and, and change agents to, despite the newness and the, and the coolness of all of the features and benefits of their solution, to try to go to great lengths to make that unfamiliar thing feel closer to the status quo. So for example, huh. I'll often talk about uh, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were designing the first user interface for the Macintosh computer back in the late 80s, uh, the status quo for, for any computer user, well, the status quo of computers at the time was IBMs and Commodores and Wang computers. These were, in order to use these computers, a consumer needed to actually fluently speak the language of computer. You needed to understand DOS. You would go into it and open this little command window, and then you'd have to type in this foreign language like run colon this program. So in order to even use a computer, you needed to first warm up to the idea that the way you would interact with this computer was going to be radically different from the way that you interacted with the analog world, which made a lot of average users in America and, in, and abroad resistant to the idea of buying a personal computer. Because think about how much effort in, in, in exertion it would take to learn that process and deal with that unfamiliarity. And so one of the things that Jobs and Wozniak did a beautiful job of was recognizing that if they were ever going to get mass consumption of personal computers, they were going to have to design it less in the way that a computer could have been designed, which is the way that IBM and Commodore and others did it, but instead to design an interface that felt as close to what people were used to as possible, which is why it's not a accident that the home screen of a Macintosh computer is called a desktop. 
and that you create things called documents and you put documents into folders. And when you're finished with the document, you crumple it up and throw it in the trash. These were user interface innovations that made an unfamiliar way of working, an unfamiliar way of engaging with a machine feel closer to home, which made it easier for mass adoption. In fact, if you look at the adoption of Apple products today and you say, have you ever seen a child use an iPhone? Have you ever seen a, an 80-year-old use a, use a tablet? Um, what would you say about that user experience? Most people will say, well, the reason that children can use it the first time they pick it up or an 80-year-old can use it the first time they pick it up is because the interface is intuitive. And what we would say is, well, the interface is intuitive because it works the way the rest of your world works. When you want to move content from one place to another, like turning the pages of a book, you drag your finger across the pages and the pages turn. And that's why when a two-year-old goes into an iPhone and starts swiping the screen, it's because it works the way the rest of their environment works. And so what does all this mean? It means that even though something is really powerful and new, like an iPhone or a Macintosh or a tablet, you have to have discipline to create an experience or an interaction with your audience that feels closer to what they know, because that newness itself can be a repellent. Like you said earlier, it's so common for us when we're the person that's bringing that new idea to think about it from a fuel standpoint, and we don't think about it on how do I make this seem familiar to others. For those who have never consciously thought about that when presenting something new, What's something that you find is a good first step to get someone in that mindset, beginning to look at it from the perspective of how do I make this familiar? Well, I mean, a lot of what we talk about in friction theory is the importance of trying to see the world through the eyes of your audience versus you as the innovator. And there's no shortage of content written about or uh, podcasts you can listen to about the importance of empathy and understanding. But what we try to do in this book is give people tools and methodologies to begin to see the world through the eyes of their audience. And I know we're talking a little bit about inertia now, but but it's also important to, to recognize that these frictions don't exist in a vacuum where only inertia is present in this one innovation and only effort is present in this one innovation. Usually they show up in pairs and sometimes all at once. And one of the examples that I think is particularly powerful where empathy is a really uh, key ingredient to overcoming frictions is when it comes to emotion, because emotional friction is not something people typically wear on their sleeve. Somebody isn't going to ordinarily tell you, well, I'm afraid to get started with this because I'm intimidated about what it means for my job security, or I'm nervous about saying yes to your idea because I'm afraid I'm going to look like a Luddite relative to my younger, more digitally native colleagues. Mm. And so one of the things that we encourage organizations and individuals to do is to include the audiences that they're designing for in the design process. Because when they feel a sense of inventorship over the strategy or a sense of inventorship over the idea, not only are they more receptive to it when it gets brought to market, but then you can also understand how they might, not only designing the product or the service, but how they might design the introduction of that into the world. How might they design the way that strategy is communicated to the organization? And by doing that, they will naturally provide you with some friction-reducing shortcuts and some friction-reducing remedies. But that's the key that comes along with having those points of view on your team. I'll give you an example. We talk in this book about 
uh, Livongo, which is a uh, extremely successful chronic disease management platform that originally started by helping people living with diabetes. It is a connected blood glucose meter that is combined with coaching services that can help folks managing diabetes go through tricky episodes in their life, whether it's managing through a hypoglycemic event or a hyperglycemic event. This is meant to create connection between these individuals and a team of coaches that can support them uh, on their journey. And one of the things that Livongo has been very deliberate in doing and trying to address the needs of people managing diabetes is to make sure that a bunch of their team, in fact, almost 50% of the people on the Livongo team are in fact people managing chronic diseases themselves because they understand how small things can make an enormous difference when it comes to friction. For example, uh, Livongo will never refer to anybody on their platform as a diabetic. And yet most of us who hear about people managing diabetes in our lives, think about type one diabetics or type two diabetics. And one of the things Livongo is quick to point out and the folks on its team are quick to point out is that when, where else in, in the world do people refer to individuals by the name of their disease? Like you don't call somebody managing psoriasis a psoriasis. You don't call somebody trying to manage cancer a cancer. But yet hmm. when it comes to diabetes, we call them diabetics. And even just that simple naming, that simple language can cause a lot of aversion and a lot of friction. And so by having these individuals on the team designing the solutions, Livongo is a in a great position to anticipate where some of this emotional friction would come from and design language and design features and benefits of their product that minimize some of those headwinds. So designing with the people you're designing for is a really important ingredient. Uh, what a great challenge to us to do that. Uh, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier is like we're so often as people, as innovators thinking about doing new things, the tendency is to get everything perfect and then have the big launch and not really engage in the conversation. And what I really hear from you is like, get people involved early, start small, empathy, so many of the things we talk about so much on the show, but we sometimes forget when all of a sudden we start thinking about new initiatives. For whatever yeah. reason, we set that aside. It's 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 interesting. I mean, I've caught myself doing it. Like normally I would do some of those things. And then when I'm doing something new, it's like, you know, going into a bit of a hole and it's it's just, it's interesting how we tend to fall into that trap. And, you know, you actually demonstrated one of the the other things you say is so powerful just early on in this conversation, which is the power of using analogies. And you started the book, and we also started this conversation with talking about the analogy of the bullet, right? In order to frame something that is a little unfamiliar with something that most people at least have some familiarity with, even if they haven't you know, ever fired a gun, they understand that concept. Analogies are really powerful. And what what is it that makes them so useful when thinking about how to introduce a new idea? Yeah. I mean, it comes back to this principle that when, when we're dealing with inertia, the whole objective here is to make unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar. And I see this a lot in the entrepreneurs I work with in the venture capital space. They may be the very first business to try to develop a certain business model or a certain strategy. And because they are the first and because something is new, sometimes investors get anxious about the risk involved in the newness of the thing. So if you're telling me that you're going to develop a chronic disease management platform and you're going to engage people in a monthly subscription and there's going to be a connected device, 
and you're the first to, you're the first in class as an investor i might say geez you know you're a young entrepreneur you haven't founded a company before and you're going to try to do something really complicated in a space that's already complicated that feels risky to me i'm going to sit on the sidelines and watch this thing unfold that's very different than somebody saying hey uh, we've got this new idea for a chronic disease management platform and while we've never applied it to gastrointestinal issues, there are lots of other examples of successful chronic disease management businesses aimed at other types of chronic diseases. There's one for hypertension, there's one for diabetes, there's one for weight management. We're simply trying to take that business model and apply it to a new problem. So what that signals to the investor is, well, there isn't business model risk because it's been a proven business model that already works in healthcare. It isn't going to be unfamiliar to the customers that would probably buy it because these are health systems and self-insured employers that have already gotten comfortable with the fact that these things exist for other conditions. So really, the only risk that this founder is talking about is whether or not this works for this particular condition. So now what you've done by referencing an analogy of other businesses that have gone down this road for a slightly different purpose, you're removing all of this uncertainty and unfamiliarity of the idea. And instead, you're focusing on the one piece that differentiates it. And we see this in venture presentations all the time. You know, we're the Uber, but for dog walking. We are the tender, but for employment. I mean, I'm making these things up. But <laughs> right. simply by saying we're the X for Y, you're removing some of the unfamiliarity of the business and instead focusing their attention on what makes it differentiated. And it's all about removing some of those areas of risk. And one of the keys I'm hearing you say there is whatever, it's the, what the audience is familiar with. So whether that audience is the executive team or the board or the investor right. that you find the thing they're familiar with, the business model they already know, you highlight the similarities there. And then you make the link to the one thing that's the new, the unfamiliar versus you're just launching into something new for the first time without any context. That's right. And I think that underscores the importance of knowing who you're speaking to, because if you use the wrong analogy, <laughs> you can actually make things worse. Yeah. Like if you went into a room full of people and said, we're the Tinder for employment. And someone's like, what's Tinder? Like, well, now you've created an even more significant prop project problem for yourself. So if you can do a little bit of homework on who you're going to be speaking to and find analogies that might resonate with those audiences, you will be of greater service to the objective. You cite the power of relativity in all of this, and you write, if we understand how relativity works, we can transform inertia from a friction into a fuel. Uh, tell me what you mean by relativity and why is that significant when thinking about something new? Yeah, relativity is we always view a new thing in relationship to whatever else it is that we're considering. And we talk about this, bringing it back to prototyping for a minute, we talk about this in design and innovation quite a bit. If I'm an entrepreneur and I want to develop a new application or a new product, and I want to test that idea with you, or I want you to buy that, that new thing, what most entrepreneurs do is they'll create a really nice prototype, one prototype that looks like the thing that they're trying to create. And they'll put that prototype in front of a, a potential customer or an investor and say, well, what do you think of this prototype? What do you think of this idea? And if I'm only giving somebody one thing to consider, what they will always compare it to is the status quo. They will always compare it to whatever it is they're doing today. And what they're doing today might be nothing. It might be that we're not purchasing any solutions or, or subscribing to any new strategy. 
So we're always going to be comparing the new thing to the status quo and the status quo will typically always win because again, we favor the familiar, which is the whole power of inertia. So what we advise entrepreneurs to do and innovators to do instead is to bring out multiple versions of an offer and say, all right, here's a version of it. That's a piece of software. Here's a version of it. That's a service. Here's a version of it. That's, you know, some hybrid product and service, whatever it might be. And you present this array of options to an investor or array of options to a consumer. Now, what you're doing, at least in their mind, is you're giving them other points of comparison. It is now not just relative to the status quo. It's relative to these other sacrificial or, or, or conceptual ideas that I'm putting in front of you. And we're forcing people now to not just consider the status quo as the alternative, but here are two or three other things that we can do going forward. And simply by moving them away from only considering the status quo as the alternative, they will be more receptive to the new thing. So when it comes to innovation, when it comes to influence, the golden rule is never give somebody just one choice because they'll always favor what they know. Mm. Instead, give them a couple of choices so that they can compare one to another and frankly, persuade themselves about which one is best for them. I've seen this in action so many times. I, for years, David, I taught presentation courses for Dale Carnegie, and we had a model that we would teach our clients when they were pitching a new idea to a board or an organization of how to approach that. And Carnegie's methodology was to do exactly what you just said, which is to not just pitch one version, but to have two or three different options that you'd bring to that presentation. And I didn't really appreciate the power of that until I saw it in action of how much a difference that made in driving change and influence with an audience. And uh, I love what you recommend in the book is even thinking about that a little more nuanced of when you bring a few options, um, you highlight a, a, a couple of I think, key points, which is one is maybe to add in an extreme option and mm -hmm. also to highlight an option that's undesirable. What's powerful about that? Yeah, there's a great metaphor that we use in the book around a wine list. If you ever go into a restaurant and you see a wine list that's put in front of you, whether you realize it or not, the choices on those wine lists are actually fairly carefully designed. You might see a bottle of wine on the wine list for 300, 400, $500 and up. Oh uh, yeah. There's always at least one, right? <laughs> there's always like the really precious or premium bottle, or in some cases there are several. And then on that same wine list in that same category, maybe reds, you'll see you know, a bottle for $30 or $40. And then you'll see a bunch of bottles in the middle of 50, 60, $70. We rarely stop to consider what job is that $500 bottle doing on this menu? And what job is that $30 bottle doing on this menu? What jobs those two extreme examples are doing on that menu is trying to drive your attention to the middle of the list, trying to get you to choose one of those 60 or $70 bottles of wine. Why? Because you don't want to order for whoever you're dining with, maybe somebody you care about, somebody you're trying to influence, somebody you're trying to express sentiment to. You don't want them to feel that they're only worthy of the cheapest bottle of wine, but you also recognize that you've got your own constraints and you're not going to buy the $500 bottle of wine. So what do you buy? You buy the sort of second cheapest or something in the middle of the range. And the reason those other bottles are on the menu is to draw your attention to that middle. And the same is true with new products or services or strategies. If we can present some extremes, we can influence people to focus where we want them to focus, which is in that sort of middle range or the optimal solution we think will serve them best. This is just so fascinating, David, of like so much of the strategies that we can use. I mean, there's 
as you mentioned, there's there's so much more in the book that I hope folks will check out, especially if you find yourself in the situation right now of leading efforts around change and innovation. So many organizations are doing that right now. And of course, it's always the responsibility of leaders to be doing that. So much more in the book that I hope folks will check out. David Schoenthal is co-author of The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas. David, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for having me. It's been great. If this conversation was useful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. I've always appreciated the distinction that John Cotter has made in his work between leadership and management. He was on episode 249 talking about how to succeed with leadership and management. Management, of course, under his definition, how we handle complexity and answer that question in our organizations. Leadership, of course, is how we answer the question of change. And of course, people are so much a part of that. Episode 249 for more details there. I'd also recommend episode 476, How to Pivot Quickly. Steve Blank was my guest on that episode. We talked about the process of shifting. And of course, so many organizations and leaders do need to shift either because they are planning on it or, as we talked about in that episode, when the environment changes around you, how do you actually pivot in a way that is going to be helpful to the organization to continue to serve, to continue to fulfill its purpose. Episode 476 for all the details there. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 512, The Way Innovators Get Traction. Tendai Vicky was my guest on that episode. We talked about the reality of being an innovator, not just a leader, but someone who's charged with innovation inside the organization. Some of you are that person, and some of you also support or work with that person or team that is charged with finding new ideas, innovating inside the organization. And of course, that comes with a lot of challenge, especially in an established organization that's used to doing something one way. Episode 512 is a great framework for you or the person you're supporting on how to get traction inside the organization with a new idea. Great compliment to this conversation. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website, plus many more. This episode will be filed under organizational change, also under entrepreneurships, lots of ideas there on both, and of course, many other episodes over the years we've aired in both of those categories. If you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, it's going to give you full access to the entire library, searchable by topic, so you can track down all of the episodes we've aired over the years on organizational change or personal leadership or coaching skills or whatever's important for you right now. It's a great window into the library that will help you to really identify what's most important and most relevant for you today. Plus access to my entire library of articles, resources, everything I've been finding in the weekly leadership guides over the years that are all database searchable by topic, plus all the free audio courses and a ton of other benefits, including the weekly leadership guide. All of those you can access for free. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com and you'll be off and running with us in just a few moments and have access to everything inside the website. I'm so glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show next week. She is going to be helping me respond to some of your recent questions. If you have a question for us to consider for that episode or a future question and answer episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback to get it our way. And I will see you next Monday back with Bonnie. Have a great week. Take care.